Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex. Today we are talking about a tale of two cities. No, not London and Paris, Land Rover and Jaguar. <laughs> Joined at the hip today, their fortunes could not be more divergent. Alex, how did we get here? And will they be joined at the hip again? I don't know. We'll see how the future hold, what the future holds for them. Uh, supposedly the most recent rumors surrounding Jaguar and their continuing sales problems uh, seem to be that they want to move up market. So peak Jaguar in the United States was 2002. I was surprised by that somehow. I forgot that. 61,000 units is what Jag moved in 2002. And when you take a look at Jag's fortunes over the decades, you see their their big change in in their their drive and their mission happened right around Ford ownership. So Ford bought them. Ford's like, we need to use this to compete with BMW and Mercedes, and we'll make big ones and small ones and sporty ones and whatever. And in comes the X-Type, which is why they had the massive increase in sales because they decided to make a less expensive model that was you know, widely panned in the press by as being just a, a gussied up Ford, because it was. Didn't think that was a huge problem anyway, but uh, didn't work for a lot of folks. And since then, their sales have dwindled down to 17,000 units last year. But that's still a high point for Jaguar, because pre-Ford, they never approached 17,000 units. In a way, going back to basics and making more expensive vehicles could make sense for Jag because when I looked at their average transaction price, they surprise and their ATP is already among the highest in luxury sellers outside of the Ultralux, uh, McLaren, Bentley, Rolls-Royce, etc. Their average transaction price is higher than Mercedes, higher than BMW, higher than Audi, etc. Probably because of their product blend, but definitely high transaction price. However, their target, their, the claiming target here now is that uh, they may focus on 10 to 20,000 units a year. So significant reduction theoretically over what they're doing now. Prices averaging above 150 to $170,000 per unit though. So definitely a big change from what we see in their lineup now. Yeah, it's a bit of a crash from where they were during the premier auto days. Uh, for those of you who are new to the Jaguar Land Rover scene, there was a time when Ford owned everything from Aston Martin to Mazda. And there was a premier auto group comprised of Lincoln Mercury, Jaguar, Volvo, and Aston Martin. And the idea was that they would focus on different luxury niches with the exception of Jaguar, which was supposed to be a full-on BMW competitor. Mm -hmm. So you got cars like the XJ to go head-to-head -head with well, they were sort of a tweener-sized car between a 5 Series and a 7 Series. Uh, we had the X-Type, which was supposed to go head-to-head -head with the BMW 3 Series, even though it was based on a Ford Mondeo. We had the S-Type, which was actually based on a fairly impressive purpose-built platform shared with the Lincoln LS back when we had that. Uh, but that mm -hmm. never quite locked horns in terms of pricing or size or dynamics with the 5 Series the way it was supposed to. And, of course, then they had the x they had the XK, which was a luxury coupe. And as Alex mentioned, they did hit their volume peak during this period. So in terms yep. of selling more cars, they succeeded on that front. But as with so many from Jaguar to Pontiac and beyond that wanted to become BMW and fell short, um, there was a little bit of an embarrassment factor. The cars weren't up to the standard that they set for themselves. 
And frankly, they also lost a lot of the warmth and the charm of the old pre-Ford Jaguar. The wood. That was the bigger problem, to be honest. It's like when we take a look at the X-Type and the XF, uh, or the S-Type that came before it, I should say. They both looked really good from the outside. And then especially, I can forgive the X-Type a little bit because it was the cheaper one. The S-Type, when it first launched, it launched with a big misstep. The interior was too Lincoln. So the Lincoln LS and the S-Type were designed together. It made a lot of sense at the time to coordinate the development of these two products. Rear-wheel drive drive Lincoln, rear-wheel drive Jag, too expensive on their own. Jam them together. Makes total sense. But they shared in some interior design parts and pieces, and it was just too cheesy in the S-Type. And then by the time they fixed it, I think it was a little bit too late because the S-Type, by the time it got a second life, new interior, it definitely looked like like the XJ's Mini-Me. That was perfection. It made a lot of sense. Just a little bit too late. Um, The XJ was too expensive for Jaguar in the end, I think, was the problem there. They, they redesigned it in around 2004, 2005. I ended up having owning two Jaguar XJs. I had a 2000 XJ and I had a 2006 XJ. And this is the era where Jaguar would redesign things and they would look the same as the old one until you parked them next to each other and you realized, oh, that actually is the new one. Huh. Um, which I kind of appreciated to in a weird sort of way. I liked that sort of continuity. I liked the styling of a classic Jag or or what Jag in the 2000s said was a classic Jag. This rounded shapes, the multi, the four headlight thing, the big leaper up front, long hood, uh, relaxed body proportions, opulent interior, etc. But that was different kind of opulence than we found the Germans. It was warmer. It was richer. It was more more upright and more slab-sided on the inside than the Germans with wraparound dash components. It had this this very classic feel to it that was that was somehow appealing. But what was interesting and what cost the XJ development so much, I think this is where things started to go a little wrong, was the XJ was incredibly aluminum intensive. And we're not talking like Audi space frame. They made a big deal of the Audi A8 space frame thing and they had the other A1 or whatever. Jaguar took aluminum construction to the next level. And this was really kind of the the test bed for what actually turned out to be the F-150 light, uh, F-150's aluminum uh, construction in the end, oddly enough. But anyway, it started with the Jag. Jaguar even made the battery cables aluminum. This car had very few steel components on it. The, the interior door components, the, a lot of seat, some of the seat components were aluminum. It meant that a long wheelbase XJ, which was size-wise the equal of a 7 Series or an S-Class or an Audi A8 of the time, over, well over 200 inches long, it was a 1,000 pounds lighter than a BMW 7 Series of similar dimension. It saved a huge amount of weight. And that's why the XJ always performed well. So the XJR, the XJ Super V8, etc., excellent performance from a supercharged engine. Not great on the reliability front. And then things started to go even more wrong when they said, well, you know, sales expectations aren't aren't going where we want them to be. They're up versus the previous generation. We think they could be higher. We need to go in a different design direction. And then we ended up with modern Jag, which strangely enough, that last generation XJ, it shared a huge amount of its structure with the previous XJ even though it looked nothing alike. It was that still all aluminum construction. 
And that's exactly when I stopped wanting a Jaguar again. You know, it's interesting because I've seen a lot of missteps through this period. And I think everyone agrees that it goes back to something that went wrong in the 2000s. Maybe it was the decision to chase BMW. Um, and then maybe there were product planning mistakes. After all, the X350, which was the 2003 Jaguar XJ with the all aluminum construction, it was a revolutionary car in terms of how it was built. And it also looked indistinguishably similar to the previous model, which dated back decades in terms mm -hmm. of design and architecture. So there was a big misstep there with the flagship product and they didn't get around to fixing this until 2010 when the final version of the XJ debuted and everyone mm -hmm. hated the taillights, but the overall shape, the front end, even the interior wasn't terrible. What it was, was well, terrible, it was well done, but I think it yeah. alienated Jaguar customers. Oh, it absolutely alienated Jag customers. The problem was it's like GM in the nineties doing focus groups with people who are already GM customers. Mm -hmm. They can't understand why people are buying those Hondas. Jaguar for a while tried to please only its loyalists. And then I think in 2007 with the XF, it started to alienate everyone because it was that 2007 XF where I remember yes. for the first time I got into a Jaguar and I felt like I was in something priced in the $20,000, mm -hmm. maybe $30,000 price range and not from Jaguar. Even the yeah. XF, as humble as its origins were, you got in some of the higher trim levels of the X-Type and you're like, this is actually still kind of warm. There's some wood, there's some leather, there's some chrome. It's not awful. Jaguar's uh, always done well with upper trims. Like the XF, I didn't like the styling, already started the alienation there. I would blame them focusing on BMW and Mercedes shoppers, specifically yeah. BMW, because Jaguar had long had great driving dynamics. I actually really liked the way the XJ and XF drove and the S-Type they drove really well compared to the BMW counterparts. But Jaguar's decision or Ford's decision to focus Jaguar on more mainstream luxury segments meant that they needed to have base engines and their base engines were blah. The XFR, fantastic. XF base, no, not so great. Same thing happened with the X-Type and you know, everything else in the lineup. It's those base engines that just did not go well for them in a way. The XFR, that first one had the most fantastic engine exhaust note. That was so much fun to drive. I would so much rather have had one of those than an M5 of the time. But this dual mission of trying to be the scrappy, you know, traditional young automatic or traditional old auto manufacturer that's trying to go go bigger volume, but retain some of this meant that obviously R&D budgets had to get shifted around. So if you start pulling budget from your high-end performance vehicles and start putting it on the base engine and mid-level engine vehicles, which didn't exist before, then eventually those high-end options are just not going to be competitive anymore. And that's what happened to the XFR. The M5 and the AMGs just got better and better and better. And Jaguar had no resources to keep up with those models, which are high revenue and high profit vehicles for Jaguar. So retaining the focus on those probably would have been the way to go. Now, we've talked a lot about Jaguar, but we haven't said much about Land Rover. I'll say this. Land Rover is taking over the the dyad of Jaguar Land Rover. At this point, Land Rover volume is three times Jaguar volume. And we've gotten mm -hmm. to the point now where it almost seems that a large portion of Jaguars going forward are going to be either contract built by companies like Magna, as with you know, the I-Pace, or they're going to be ultra niche pieces as maybe Jaguar seeks yeah. profit margin and price point and Land Rover increasingly 
takes over, but it's difficult to envision even where Jaguar fits in a world where Jaguar makes crossovers and Land Rover makes crossovers, but Land Rover has the name everyone thinks of when they think SUV. A lot of the a lot of Jaguar problems also seem to stem just with the dying nature of sedans in America as well. Uh, sedans are a very tiny sliver of the pie. The only sedan that sells over 300,000 units is the Camry. The only three sedans that are on the top 15 best-selling list in America, which accounts for over a third of new car sales are in the top 15. Only three of them are sedans now. They represent about 10% of the the volume in that, that huge share of the automotive new car industry. And the only reason Civic and Corolla are even on that list is because the manufacturers bundled in hatchback sales with the sedan numbers. So if you remove the hatchback Corolla and the hatchback Civic, they fall off the top 20 list. That's how sedans are going. And the number of sedans, period, available, number of models of sedans available in America has been cut in half over the last about 20 years. Jaguar's always struggled because they've been a sedan-focused brand. And even though they've tried to add SUVs, it really goes against their logic because for decades, Jaguar's answer for why we don't have an SUV has been, we do have them. They're called Land Rovers, and they're in that corner of the dealer. If you want a sedan, that's over here. If you want the SUV, that's over there, and it has a Land Rover logo on it. And I think that's why we see this huge rise in the fortune of Land Rover sales, because SUVs are on the rise. So last year, they sold 92,400 Land Rovers in the United States. That was almost five times, actually, Jaguar's sales last year of just 17,000. And uh, if we go back in history, that is their second best sales year ever, second only to 2019. So supply constraints hampered uh, Land Rover's performance last year. 2011, 10 years before that, 38,000 units. 2001, 10 years before that, 27,000 units. 1991, 10 years before that, 3,300 units in the U.S. So the Land Rover sales charts having this meteoric rise, and it seems like it can have no end. But Jaguars, um, you know, they'll be lucky if they hit the same numbers as 1991 next year, probably. And what's amazing is that there is absolutely a market for this type of car, and the mass market success of Bentley proves that. Um, the question is just, at this point, is Jaguar going to be a sort of, I don't know, Bentley rival with Bentley-like volumes? They're just going to, are they just going to say, look, we're cutting our losses. The F, the F type is ready to retire. There will be no replacement. The XJ was retired. There was going to be an EV sedan. That got fairly far in the development process before they decided to decapitate that. It got $1.4 billion into the development process. That's how much it cost Jaguar Land Rover to develop that all-electric XJ that nowhere to be seen. And it's not even clear that that technology is going to be paid forward into a new project. We've got the I-Pace. There doesn't seem to be any obvious follow-on from the I-Pace. We've got the E-Pace, you know, e which is not electric, and the F-Pace, um, which are okay. But I think when you could get something like a Defender, why would you go Jaguar? I mean, when you get something like mm -hmm. a Velar, when you can get something, even if you want a compact vehicle, you know, the I Evoque. Mean, F, F Pace versus Velar, E Pace versus Evoque. This is a perfect example. There's nothing wrong with the with the the F Pace or or the the E Pace because they're exactly the same as the better selling Land Rover. They just have a Jaguar logo and a Jaguar interior in it. But it's the brand sell brand sells. And no one seems to want an SUV with a Jaguar on the hood. 
And you know, the other thing too, is that if you look at the new Range Rover and you try to figure out what the, what, what the comparable product is, what, what the segment rival is, you don't, maybe a Mercedes GLS, maybe something like that, but really this is Land Rover's response to something like an S-Class or a 7 Series. They're saying, look, this is a vehicle that can do everything your D-segment luxury car does, and then it can do everything that car can't do, towing off-roading, overlanding, trips into the woods, um, ski lodges. You've got all that capability. When you have a vehicle that capable, that's theoretically a rival for like a GLS and an S-Class, mm -hmm. and that is the premier vehicle offered inside the group, how can you even say Jaguar is going to be an upmarket niche manufacturer when currently the flagship of the whole group is a Land Rover and Jaguar doesn't have anything on that level? Yeah. They would, I mean, of course, JLR would go, well, it's a Range Rover. It's not just a Land Rover. Yeah. It's a Range <laughs> it's a, Rover. Yes. It's a sub, it's a sub brand. Um, but that I think is the model for what they want to do with Jaguar is they want to take a look at what they did with Range Rover and electrify that with some sort of differentiation, a little bit unclear as to what that will be. Because if it's simply an electric SUV, then why not just call it a Range Rover and sell more? But that's theoretically what will happen here is that it will be that that same sort of treatment we see in the Range Rover lineup applied to electrified Jag crossovery sedany whatever's that they cook up. I think that this is going to come to a head in the next 24 months. Uh, you can mark my words on this. We're getting the point with Jaguar volumes where the dealer structure as it's currently set up does not make sense. Yep. We're getting to the point, you know, where, you know, when you have two countries at war and like the bigger country keeps taking more and more portions of the smaller one until you're left with what they call a rump state, which is not viable. And then the rest of it falls just because it can't sustain itself. We're getting to that point with Jaguar where there's no longer yep. a viable brand. Or do they sell it? That's the other the other thing that we don't know that has been widely rumored is it's possible at this point that Jaguar just could be separated from this and they could be sold to a Chinese investment company or a Chinese auto manufacturer looking to, you know, get a, a schnazzier image somewhere. That is entirely possible. Whether this turns out like MG or it turns out like Volvo, we don't know because those are two polar polar ends of what could happen if your company gets purchased by a Chinese auto manufacturer. Um, let's just say things have not gone well for MG as far as their European or worldwide presence did wonders for the Chinese market and the manufacturer that bought them. Don't get me wrong. It was a good business deal for the company that did the acquisition, just did not do anything for MG fans around the world. Volvo turned out spectacularly. We could not have, ex we could not have hoped for a better outcome from that purchase arrangement where a possible Jaguar purchase could slot. We just don't know. Or does it end up like, uh, honestly, Aston Martin, which is also withering on the vine because of who ended up buying them? Well, I think it's going to be, honestly, I hate to use the MG comparison, but it's definitely not going to be a Volvo-style thing because Volvo was, was freestanding, self-supporting. They had their own business office, their own factories, their own powertrains, and their own platforms. Jaguar Land Rover really are integrated on the business office side mm -hmm. as well as in terms of platform engineering and, you know, internationally emissions compliant engines. There's so much crossover now. Yeah, that can be separated, though, because Ford effectively did it when Ford. This is kind of the weird business angle side of things when the when PAG split up, when Ford ditched Volvo and Land Rover, the reason that both manufacturers 
really rushed to do new engine designs. And the reason that 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 JLR is is inking engine deals with German companies is because when Ford sold them, Ford kept the rights to all the engines. And so the Volvo inline six, the reason it got whacked first was because the Volvo inline six that Jaguar also ended or well, uh, Land Rover also ended up using for a while. That was a Volvo design that was paid for by Volvo. So Volvo had to cough up all the cash for the engineering, but it was manufactured in a Ford engine factory in the UK and Ford owned the rights. So when Ford sold off these disparate entities, they kept the rights to the AJV8 and the derived six cylinder engine that Jaguar and Land Rover used, even though Jaguar Land Rover had to pay for that design initially. Ford was building it in a Ford factory. They kept that factory. They licensed it back to them. And they licensed Volvo's own modular engine factory back to Volvo in the divorce. So the Volvo engine lineup that was developed prior to Ford's acquisition of Volvo in 1999, Ford kept the licensing rights to that engine family, which is why they had to go and develop a new engine family because they didn't want to pay Ford the licensing fees. Jaguar Land Rover didn't have as much cash from their backer, so they couldn't afford to do that development right away. It took a lot longer for them to try and get rid of the old Ford four-cylinder engines and really develop their new Ingenium engine family. But that's why the uh, the accelerator pedal was really pushed on the on the Volvo side to ditch the five-cylinder, ditch the Ford four-cylinders, um, ditch the dual-clutch transmission that they were purchasing from Ford as well. So that's why all of that was gone. I think it's just going to be very difficult to separate Jaguar and Land Rover. I, I don't think Jaguar has enough assets in its own right to be a freestanding brand. And the funny thing is, if you look at Jaguar Classic, the restorations, the re-editions, you can go out and you can buy a recreation of a Jaguar E-Type lightweight with period-correct disc brakes and Lucas fuel injection. And they're able to create stuff like this that's imaginative and heartfelt and captures the imagination and then they try to do anything but a classic jaguar and they fail magnificently mm -hmm. i'm wondering i if think separation is possible though because look at opal who would have thought you'd be able to separate opal from general motors now it's with chrysler well i mean at least they had their own factories and they had their own unions and production lines there, there was there was a company there mm -hmm. i don't think there is a jaguar without land rover and I'm not sure even Jaguar knows what it is. It might be that Jaguar is just a custom and classic shop someday making the world's best resto mods, <laughs> old Mark IIs and XKEs. I hate to say that. Yeah. I mean, if they bring back if they bring back classic styling, classic interiors with a modern with a bit of a modern twist and an electric drivetrain, that you know, there's there's room for a few thousand units a year of that at two hundred thousand dollars a year. It's theoretically possible. Again, like I said, the odd odd twist with Jaguar is if they could only increase if they could either further increase their transaction price or just bump up the volume a little bit, it wouldn't be so bad because their average transaction price is crazy high in the US. I was really shocked. I assumed it would be more Audi-like, but it actually is somewhere between Aston Martin and Mercedes as far as That's average transaction price. price. They're probably not selling that many E-Paces if they're at that kind of transaction price. No. Get that. The only way you can get there is top trim versions mm -hmm. of flagship models, which means they might be selling a shocking number of F-types compared to what I expected. I think that's what where where their models are probably going. Okay, so Jaguar to be determined, but I think that if this is how Jag fares in what have been pretty good times for luxury automakers, I shudder to think of what a real global recession would look like for that brand. So to be determined. 
Well, that would be the benefit of raising your transaction price is, you know, global recessions generally don't hit the ultra premium segment quite as hard. So all you crypto millionaires, well, it's still left. <laughs> go, out, go out and buy that Jaguar F-Type. Do it now. All right. Um, so let's let's go back to the decade from hell, 2000, back when there was still some hope for Jaguar, and talk about <laughs> what cars we would preserve and collect from the 2000s. I'll lead off with a Jag. I would take the 2003 to 2006 XKR. This was the XK100 generation. Um, it had the styling from the 90s, but in 2003, it got a proper uh, six-speed automatic transmission, stepping up from the old four-speed. And uh, the engine got a little bit of a bump from 390 or 370 to 390 horsepower and right about 400 pound-feet of torque. It still has that wonderful, like, British smoking room interior, acres of wood, tons of leather, chrome, no room for people over six feet tall, but it's so beautiful, you don't mind. Mm -hmm. I would I would do a 2007 or 2008 uh, Super V8. I really? had a Super V8 once upon a time. I had that generation Super V8 pre-refresh. Um, and my experience is one of of bliss and pain and, uh, you know, uh, drained bank accounts and uh, intense love. <laughs> Everything that should accompany a Jaguar. And I think that's maybe that's the, that's the problem with modern Jaguar. I, we should get off the topic. But I think that's maybe the problem is that there's no associated emotion with this stark modern design like there was to compensate you for the repair bill. Yeah, well, when you got in the XK150, which succeeded, you know, it was the old aluminum coupe. Nice car, looked good from the outside, but you got inside it and the interior felt stark, austere. If the wood was there, you couldn't see it. And the whole thing felt like a combination of metallic coated plastics, which are distinct from metal parts, and a lot of piano black matte surfaces, things that didn't look or feel expensive. Now, the Germans know how to do that. Jaguar didn't know how to do that without mm -hmm. leather, and chrome, and wood. And the result was something that felt almost, I don't know, institutional. It was just not fun. Yeah. And the XJ Super, I like the Super V8 because it was the, it was the XJR 400 horsepower supercharged engine jammed into a Vandenplaw body. So it had the chrome and the, and all the bits you would assume and the long wheelbase and the tray tables, et cetera. But it also had the fast engine tune and a sportier suspension design. It was known as the Daimler 8 and was used as the uh, the um, prime minister's transport in the UK at that time. Oh, yes. and But Alex, because these are British cars, they're not fold-down trays. They're picnic tables. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it. Sorry, under the bonnet. You're good. <laughs> of course. Of course. Oh, and if you have any cargo, it'll go in the boot. Speaking of which, here's a car, or a truck, I should say, with quite a boot. The 2004 to 2006 Ram SRT10, for a couple uh... of reasons. First, it was a Viper-powered truck, which is just crazy. Um, but second, they included a standard cab short bed profile, which I think is now not available at any price on the U.S. market anymore in a full-size truck. 
and it was two wheel drive, rear wheel drive, of course. Yeah. And it was a manual transmission. They yanked the whole powertrain out of the Viper. So you've mm -hmm. got both the stick shift and the V10. So between this thing having a no longer available configuration, which is the perfect one if you're going to have a sport truck, and the stick shift 500 horsepower, we have no shortage of five, six, 700 horsepower trucks now, EV or ICE. But to get all of that, in a yeah. compact package without a crew cab, without a long wheelbase, without an automatic transmission or no transmission in the case of the EVs, that will never happen again, ever. And shockingly, it seems like sport trucks will never happen again. That was the time where we did have a Lightning and we yeah. had the SRT10 and we had this this uh, truck that was road roadworthy, improved handling, et cetera, for road duty. And when the TRX launched, the Ram TRX, the current one, I asked, I said, you know, my gosh, you know, have you ever thought of a sport, a street truck version of this, like a resurrection of the SRT? This could be like Ram SRT something. And they were so offended that anybody could possibly bring up the concept of a street performance truck. <clears throat> and they said, but, you know, we just don't think it would sell. The SRT tell 10 didn't sell well. It was it was terrible. It cost us a lot of money. It just wasn't worth it. No one bought it. Um, this is ludicrous. And I was like, but you know, you realize that more of America lives close to a drag strip than a sand dune, right? Like statistically, more people could take their SRT truck to a drag strip. It didn't work for them. Anyway, I'm just going to rattle off four and tell me which of these is exciting. So the S2000, the Viper, the Prowler, or a neon SRT4. Oh, neon SRT4. Um, I am all about that. That thing is a legend. Presuming you can find one that hasn't been raced, crashed, or otherwise cracked up, that thing, that thing could scoot. And that's before you added like stage two or stage three kits. Like that was about as much bonkers front wheel drive horsepower as the 2000s could warrant. Like if you look at that, I mean, if you look at that I guess the one that killed it for the Honda Civic SI, mm -hmm. the hatchback, the English built 160 horsepower, you know, double wishbones are gone. It's all McPherson struts up front. That was the contemporary of the bonkers SRT4, which was everything like a Honda Civic type R should have been. With a slightly cheesier interior and a questionable reliability reputation. Well, it's but all these things, look, but it's a Mopar. <laughs> what's, what's, what's next on your list? Oh, well, I'm going to go with, okay, pile on the hate in the comments below, but I'm going to go with the original Honda Insight because, frankly, Ew. it was a supercar. It wasn't a supercar in terms of speed, but in terms of every single part and system being efficiency optimized, it was an uncompromised performance vehicle. It was a little teardrop aluminum shell um, that barely fit two people that half a JV football team could lift and move to a different parking spot. And it was just the most, I mean, you could not get a more committed efficiency oriented platform unless you somehow smuggled an EV one out of the car crusher. <clears throat> or you put a, or you put a Prius engine under the hood. Well, yeah, there's that, but <laughs> I don't think there's ever been a 70 mile rated car, EPA 70 MPG rated car before or since. And I will remind you, of course, that was on the previous EPA test cycle. So pretty, I would bet a current Prius probably would hit that on that cycle. 
That's probably true, and it wasn't particularly green because it had a soon-to-be-banned lean burn mode, mm -hmm. um, and it was only available with the manual, but there was a lean burn mode that allowed it to hit that number, which is why the CVT never hit 70. Um, so you're probably cranking out quite a few oxides of nitrogen. But go yeah. ahead and try to find one of these things that hasn't been run ragged, crashed, repainted, and beat to hell. If you have a great example, this might actually be of interest to someone someday, and it might even be me. Because let's see here, that was a 2000, yeah, so that was pre-adjustment pre of fuel economy figures. And it was only 70 on the highway. It was lower in the city. So, and uh, car and driver said they achieved just 48 miles per gallon in the real world. So, yeah, but in the city, little, it was... Little wah, wah. Yeah, yeah, but you could get out <laughs> and push and increase its efficiency. Sure, and, sure, sure, sure. Look. Uh, next I have, uh, the Acura TSX, which I think was, was widely panned at the time incorrectly. I, I went back and I looked at some, some reviews and it was, oh, it's just a, uh, an gussied up Honda Civic. Interestingly shared almost nothing with a Honda Civic in America because it was in fact the Japanese and European market accord. Ooh, that's both generations. Well, I'm going to add something that was available for one year, made a lot of noise, and was probably more influential as a model than as a variant. But that original Mercedes-Benz CLS as the CLS 55, before the takeover of the 6.3, the M156, they offered an M113K, which was a supercharged V8 of the previous generation. Mm -hmm. That thing went like hell, sounded like a riot. And it's the mini version of the engine that went into the Benz McLaren SLR. So the 6.3 has all sorts of problems. It eats, it, it, it eats camshafts. It has head bolt problems that would do justice to a Cadillac Northstar. Uh, they consider things like uh, roller rockers and finger followers in the valve train to be service replacement items before 100,000 miles. No one should ever buy the 6.3 to drive just put it on display. That's all it's good for. But if you want to drive and have fun with your AMG, the M113K is unburstable. And I think that first generation CLS was one of the great influential designs of the modern era. It's the best engine in the best looking version of that car. Ooh, and the best looking version of that car was still not very good looking. It looked like a Mercedes, Mercedes has a lot to answer for for the CLS because they started the craze that just should never have been started in the first place. I would have gone for the E55 because that was on my list. The second generation E55 because that was the first one that got the supercharged engine. It went from 354 horsepower up to 469. It was a lot of fun, but it was still discreet. It was still that that Mercedes traditional AMG thing where it wasn't going to be flashy. It didn't have, you know, the, the bat crap crazy multi-clutch transmissions that are horrible to drive now. It was still that more classic Mercedes thing where they weren't chasing BMW. They were just yeah. doing their own thing. But I would say I would probably have a, I think the more influential car, wouldn't rather have it, mind you, okay. but more influential car, generally speaking, was the first generation Volvo S80. That's interesting. Uh, you you got to unpack this because I'm not following you. So the first generation Volvo S80 is the start of Volvo's design language that has continued through to today. The, the, the wide hip, the modern curv curvaceous rear wide hip thing going on, 
the if you look at the rear end of the S80, it was the first one with that bell-shaped tail end and the bell-shaped tail lamps, which continue to every modern Volvo today. Interestingly, it also was not a Ford Volvo because the entire design of that process was complete before the Ford acquisition. So um, Ford then took the platform that Volvo created for the S80, and then they built Fords on that platform. So they built the Taurus, et cetera, on the successors to that platform, uh, things like that. So that was a hugely influential vehicle for them. And up until, up until actually the, the, uh, departure of Ford from the Volvo world, everything that Volvo built was related to that original S80. It was some manner stretched perform stretch platform etc so that was their original p1 platform they ended up on p2 which is a, 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 a co-shared der derivative of that platform that included some some ford models here and there but um hugely influential for for that that swedish brand yeah actually i'm gonna i'm gonna totally agree with that because that platform was like the butterfly effect that leads to the modern era I remember the joke at the time was that Jacques Nasser, who was the CEO of Ford at the time, he was creating the Premier Auto Group. They joked that he bought Volvo because he liked that platform so much. And it did find its way into the 500. And then later they rebranded that as the Taurus. Mm -hmm. um, but that was kind of the seed of the idea of platform sharing between uh, the Ford divisions. And he did love that original S80, which was a weird tweener car price and size wise. It wasn't a five series. It wasn't an S class. It wasn't a seven series. It was somewhere in between. It was also the car that used that uh, twin turbo straight six. We talked about a little bit yep. earlier in another lifetime. Uh, that was, yeah, there was, that was the twin turbo six that Volvo designed. And then, and then their second generation twin turbo engine was the one that was produced in the Ford factory. So unrelated engines, okay. um, similar displacements, but un actually unrelated engines. But that was back when Volvo really was doing a lot of engineering work themselves. They wanted a manual transmission in the six cylinder vehicle for the European market and no one had one that would fit. So they just designed their own. An interesting selection. I didn't realize this was a 2000s because when I, I think of the TJ Wranglers, I generally think of the 1990s, but the TJ Rubicon didn't arrive until 2003. So I'm going to go ahead and choose one of those with the manual transmission because it's so unlike the Wrangler of today. And to me, the TJ was really the last uh, Jeep vehicle that still seemed like a vestigial outgrowth of the Willis MB from World War II. It had a low belt line. It had a jaunty look to it. It was compact enough that the old AMC straight six still felt pretty peppy. And, you know, the short wheelbase Wrangler has always been the one to take off roading. Mm -hmm. And that with the Dana 44s and the Rubicon package really is the ultimate off-road Wrangler in my mind. It was also, you know, the TJ was the first Wrangler to use uh, coil springs. So, you know, you've got a lot of tunability in there. You've got a decent on-road ride. And today's Wrangler, even in two-door form, feels the size of the old 1990s Land Rover Defenders. Whereas that old Wrangler really did feel like, you know, my grandpa who was in the service could have like looked at it and said, yeah, that's familiar. It was like mm -hmm. a seat for the modern era. I would go with the second generation Lexus LS. This is the last one on my list. It it sort of fits because it went from 97 to 2000. So the end just barely squeaked it in there. Um, this still looked like the original LS, just very slightly tweaked here and there. But it had all of those things that I think Lexus fans are still drawn to. It was the original smooth, quiet, 
uh, unassuming, but still, but still luxurious fit in with the crowd kind of thing. And then Lexus started to go off on their design tangent that continues to today, which is a little um, polarizing, shall we say. Yeah. And at the at the beginning of Lexus, they really wanted to blend in with the luxury crowd. And now, now they want to stand out, whether that's good or bad. <laughs> well, the problem is Lexus decided almost before full-size trucks that big, crazy grills were the way to go. Mm -hmm. um, and there, I, I never got the spindle grill. It's been done decently on some models. In general, it's better than BMW. I'll say that. It's better than what BMW is doing. But that's that's all I'm going to say. If you want something classically awesome, maybe not beautiful, but certainly with presence, the Bentley Brooklyns of 2009, a one-year oh, model. I agree, yes. They were going to make 500. They didn't even make it to 400 with the global downturn. This thing required over 100 hours to braise body parts together. Multiple cows gave their lives mm -hmm. to each interior. Uh, there were acres of wood. This was the last Bentley to share a platform with Rolls-Royce products. And short of the Molsen, which was a dedicated platform and completely unrelated, you could argue this really was the last traditional Bentley. Uh, 6.75 liters, well over 500 horsepower, I think it was 535, over 770 pound-feet of torque. It redlined at like 4,500 RPM. And there was a lot of old school, like hot rod shop handcrafting of that body to get the coupe roof onto the sedan body to yeah. close gaps and panels without using like plastic filler, old school brazing and lead, like things that you will never see in the auto industry again. I have to admit that I really, really wanted a Brooklyn's sedan at one point. And uh, fortunately, I had a, a independent shop that did work on my Jag. And uh, in this you know moment of weakness, I shared my, my desire for the Bentley. And, uh, and he says, uh, oh, no, you're, you're, not, you're not there. You're not the right demographic for this car. Let me, let me show you. And so he had a, someone that actually had a Bentley Brooklyn's on site there that was being repaired. But he knew the guy wanted to sell it. So he's fixing up to get rid of it. And he's like, let me show you all the problems. This is why you don't want one. So he's touring me through all the hydraulic fluid leaks and the, the cam driven hydraulic pump that Bentley had on the six and six and three quarter liter engine. Oh my God. Uh, and then the, the pride, the repair bill, he pulls out the repair bill. Let me show you the repair bill. And I was like, okay, you're right. I, I definitely don't want any more. Yeah. Well, that Brooklyn's at least that, that Brooklyn's is a little bit of a different story. Because with the second generation Brooklyn's, the first generation Brooklyn's was a price point car. The second generation Brooklyn's was a flagship. And true, true, true. it had a good solid half decade of Volkswagen money to fix the worst offending parts. So previous versions of like the Bentley turbocharged engine, they ate their camshafts. Uh, they had all sorts of head gasket problems. But by the time they got to like the 2006 Arnage and the car that would become the Brooklyn's, They'd sorted mm -hmm. most of those problems out. That's not to say the air suspension won't bankrupt you or you won't wind up with problems yeah. that cost five figures to repair. You absolutely will. They were built a little bit better, though, to the point where maybe yeah. if this wasn't your everyday car, you could, like, budget. Like, some people budget to go to Atlantic City and gamble. Mm -hmm. Some people budget for crazy far-flung travel and expensive plane rides. Some people budget to fix things that break on a Bentley. At least with the second generation Brooklyn's, there shouldn't be as many of them. 
Yeah, it was still kind of it was still problematic because the some the answer to some of that is you buy the original the other Brooklyns without the supercharged the turbocharged engine rather you just buy it yeah. with a naturally aspirated engine which was available, uh, or you buy uh, you buy an Arnage instead and get the BMW engine because that's going to be better than yeah. the Bentley engine. There were there were there because that was the time where where they were buying BMW engines right before the Volkswagen acquisition. So. All of the Bet- all the BMW engine ones, which had their own issues, because BMW engines are by no means extraordinarily reliable from this era, they were still better than what Bentley was doing. Yeah, if you're looking at like a turn of the century Bentley, go with the BMW. I think they call it Arnage Green Label. I think they called it. Yeah, they had the red label and green label thing, and I forget exactly which was this. Let's uh, see here. Uh, red label was yeah the was the original engine. Green label was the the uh, BMW engine it looks like. Yeah, all of the B- all of the Bentley turbocharged engines made between the Arnage green label and about 2006 and the redesigned twin turbo Arnage, all of those engines have monstrous problems because mm-hmm. Volkswagen shoved the old 6.75 liter back into service in a fit of haste as they realized their BMW engine supply was going to taper off. Um, and they tried to just make it work on the same terms, and they were not successful. Those have all sorts of problems. Get the 2006 and later twin turbo. You will thank me later. You will thank yeah. me when you're merely impoverished instead of mired in absolute penury. And you also got the much more modern transmission because the uh, the Bentley engines for a long time, the Rolls, Rolls and Bentley engines, which Rolls had already stopped using, I think, or because they were transitioning over to the V12, as I recall. But uh, they were still using a GM four-speed, a 4L80, uh, which was a very old transmission at the time. <laughs> and uh, everything else got ZF transmissions, which is much more modern and reliable. The thing about getting the Brooklyn's, though, is no tour exactly like it had a theoretical, I think, base price of about 350000 No one was out the door for less than four hundred grand. Mm-hmm. So if this is going to be a thing for you, make sure the original owner's name isn't monogrammed onto the headrests. Yeah. The other problem with those ultra-luxury vehicles is that they don't drop quite as far as some. I mean, there's this, this initial you know cliff of depreciation, and then they rumble along at just too expensive to really consider. <laughs> yeah, ton miles you're looking at like eighty thousand dollars. Low miles, Brooklyn's uh, more like one twenty. Yeah, don't don't buy one with seventy thousand miles. Again, that's just don't don't do it. There's there's a reason why you don't buy British cars with seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand miles. Okay, unless Alex, you're crazy. <laughs> is that your entire dream garage from the two thousands? That is my entire dream garage. Then we are good, guys. Alex is going to tell you where you can find us online. Yes, head over to youtube.com, type in Alex and Autos or EV Buyer's Guide, or of course this podcast, which is the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. You can see our air quotes, etc. And of course, head over to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those other social places as well. And we'll see all of you next time. Time out. Tim out. Alex out. Um, I'm wondering if we should record an in, unless you do you have actually the 15 minutes? I got a guy who I'm guiding through like some sort of social. I will do it next time. The then. First time. At well, some point we should do a video for the main channel. Like, Hey, this is what the podcast looks like. Um, uh, but we'll do that next time. Yeah. We, do you want to do just like 10 minutes? Uh, yeah. Cause it's basically just an intro. So like, uh, you just, you know, hi guys, if you didn't yeah, know, no there's also a podcast and, uh, that sort of thing. And then maybe introduce you, you know, this is, this is Tim. This is what he does. That kind of thing.
Okay, no problem. Um, so I haven't really thought it out that far. So uh, okay. if you have an idea for this, we could do it next time. <laughs> no, no, no. It's good. It's good. I'll lead. I'll lead. Okay. Uh, so I'll I'll go ahead and introduce us, and then uh, and then you can hop in. All right. If that makes Three, sense. Two. Hey, everybody. If you didn't already know it, Alex and Autos has a podcast. I know this is something that a lot of you have been asking for for quite some time, and we're doing it in conjunction with Tim Masso. Say hi, Tim. Hi, I'm Tim of Watchbox, best known for watches, but I love all things with wheels inside and out, which is why I'm collaborating with Alex on the new Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. And uh, normally you get to see only Tim's wrist in these videos. I watch some of them, and it's like this wrist, like wandering around in the videos. Uh, but now you actually get to see Tim's face. So you can find us on all of your favorite podcast platforms, Google, Spotify, etc. Tim, tell them what you'll find on the channel. Well, you're going to find just about everything. You're going to find a discussion of everything current in cars, which means internal combustion at the highest levels, car culture, EVs, questions you might have about buying cars, as well as the daily grind of actually living with some of the hot button vehicles at the moment, Ford Lightning, Rivian, Lucid, BMW, Mercedes, and yes, quite a few bloopers and outtakes. We do get a little bit silly at times, so there will be some of that. Yep, and you will also discover that Tim is a lover of the Chevy Bolt. You will find out that I am a lover of many odd vehicles. My dream garage contains both a Bentley Brooklyn's and a Honda Insight first generation. I'm that kind of guy. And don't forget that Chrysler Pacifica hybrid. Oh yeah, well, I'm loading it up. I'm loading it up. Pinnacle, Alex. Pinnacle. <laughs> Yeah, so if you have a love for all things plug-in hybrid or all things gasoline, or very strangely, a soft spot for all things early 2000s, apparently the podcast is the place to go because we were just discussing our dream garages for the 2000s. And let's just say it was an interesting list of crazy things from Mercedes, Jeep, Acura, and yes, even a neon SRT4. We had hellacious good times with the decade from hell. This. Yep. And more on the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. And if you want to know which favorite K car is mine and which favorite K car is Tim's, you might have to watch a future episode. <laughs> that was ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> you don't have a favorite K car? Of course I have a favorite K car. It is the Dodge Shelby CSX. Yeah, the, that's that's supposed yeah. to be for later. You can't talk about your favorite K car now. Oh, this did is I to tell did people this is to tell people that they should watch for the favorite K car. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to talk about my favorite K car, and I promise you, it's not a Chrysler TC by Maserati. Oh, wow. Yeah, that it did exist. The Chrysler Maserati. Who would have known that they are now under the same umbrella? Yeah, that's weird. Convergence theory. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe I need a. Well, we've talked about K-Cars, we've talked about Neon SRTs, we've talked about Honda Insights. What will we talk about next? Maybe the next car in your garage. Find out on the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast. Yep, and uh, be sure and email us questions. You can email those to itsaconspiracy at alexandautos.com because as with everything we do when it comes to viewer questions, apparently there's some sort of conspiracy involved. At any rate, you can email us those questions there, comment on this video. I promise someone will be browsing through comments to try and find them. And of course, subscribe to the podcast channel because you're not going to find podcasts here. Everybody thought that that was boring. We tried it for a little bit. They are over on the podcast channel. If you want to see things like the air quotes, that's the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast channel. And of course, find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. See all of you later. Thank you.